Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. The name of our Torah portion, Va'era, means, And I appeared. It's from the verse that says, And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Hashem, I did not make myself known to them. Exodus 6, verse 3. When it says, And I appeared, it seems significant to me, as if it was the theme of the entire Torah reading and the entire story of the Exodus from Egypt. In Exodus 6, God contrasts his appearance in the past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the appearance he is making to the generation of Moses in Egypt. He says, In the past, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's appearance to the forefathers in the past was a big deal. He's not diminishing the gravity of the revelation obtained by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, has God appeared to you? I personally have been on the planet longer than half a century. In all that time, Hashem has never appeared to me. I'm not special in that regard either. In most cases, the unseen God does not just appear to us, neither as El Shaddai nor as Hashem. Yeshua refers to him as your father who is unseen. The Gospel of John says, No one has seen the Father except he who is from God. John 6.46 And in another place, in the same gospel, Yeshua says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. It's true. That's the problem with the unseen God, the invisible God, the concealed God. In view of the fact that God does not appear to us, that He goes unseen, it's not unreasonable to espouse agnosticism on the question of God's existence and involvement in the world. I've said that before. What is agnosticism? Gnosis means knowledge. Agnosis. The agnostic simply does not know. He does not have enough information to draw a conclusion. The agnostic simply admits, maybe there is a God. I don't know. And it's obvious that's the way God designed the world, a world of mysteries, of unanswerable questions, in which his existence or non-existence might both be possible, just as good and evil are both possible. But when God appears, he shatters the illusion of concealment suddenly where there was no knowledge, agnosis, suddenly there is knowledge, the knowledge of Hashem, the revelation of God, and all uncertainty is dispelled, at least momentarily. When God appeared to Abraham, revealing himself as the one God, the only God, the creator of heaven and earth and all that is in them, he dispelled the illusion of concealment and limitation, and Abraham knew there is a God. And he knew about him. He obtained some of the knowledge of Hashem, enough to know that this is a real personal God who is concerned with Abraham as an individual and takes an active role of involvement in human life. That's knowledge. That's the power of revelation. 
So it would be wonderful, in my opinion, if God would appear to all of us in like manner, dispelling all doubts and uncertainties, bestowing upon us the pure knowledge of Hashem. Think of how how our lives might be different if we had such an encounter like that of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. That is the promise of the Messianic era, the hope of the kingdom, a day when the knowledge of Hashem will be universal, flowing from Jerusalem like a river of life, shining from Messianic Jerusalem like a brilliant light in the darkness, so that everyone will know the Lord. That is the hope and the promise of the kingdom. To experience God now in this world, an appearance like the revelation to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a small measure of the experience of the kingdom. In that day, God's Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. We will all dream and prophesy and receive visions, and the knowledge of God will cover the earth. But there is another side to the revelation of Hashem, and that's what our Torah portion is really all about. The other side of the story is that the revelation of Hashem carries with it serious implications. I think it's fair to say that, outside of Moses himself, no man on earth had a greater, clearer revelation of Hashem than Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The story starts in last week's Torah portion, where Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Exodus 5.1 Pharaoh replied with a statement of sheer agnosticism. He said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5.2 Then it's on. And the Lord explains to Moses more than once that he is going to unleash the plagues on Egypt and punish the Egyptians and show his signs and wonders so that Pharaoh will know his name, will know he is the Lord, and so that all the Egyptians will know him, so that all the children of Israel will know him. I'm going to rattle through a list of verses from the plague narratives. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Exodus 7, 5. That you may know there is no one like the Lord our God, Exodus 8.10. So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land, Exodus 8.22. In order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth, Exodus 9.16. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord, Exodus 10.2. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, Exodus 12.12. It will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, Exodus 14.4. The entire episode of the plagues on Egypt and the exodus from Egypt were all engineered to shatter the illusion of concealment and introduce into the world the revelation of God's existence. God's objective, then, is his self-disclosure to the world, the same objective as the kingdom of heaven when the whole world will know the Lord. 
In the drama that ensues, Pharaoh reigns as the king of the agnostics. The miracles, signs, and wonders impress him. And for a moment, the light goes on. He sees the bigger picture, he gets outside of his head, and he realizes that Hashem exists and rules all things. But after a little time elapses, and he has a, he has a little time to think it over and get back to his normal routine, his skepticism returns, clouds his mind, and he defaults back to his original paradigm. For example, he is impressed when Moses and Aaron can make their staffs turn into serpents. But his skepticism returns when his own magicians, Jonas and Jambres, are able to duplicate the effect. Likewise with the water that turned to blood and the frogs. Pharaoh looks awfully foolish to us because we know the whole story, but put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. Someone from some other religion and nation comes and starts making claims about his religion and starts claiming to do miracles and signs. It would take more than a few miracles to convince you to convert to Islam or Buddhism, I think. But even when we do experience the miracles of Hashem, the moment of clarity lasts only a little while. We might experience life-changing types of miracles that come to us in the form of an obvious answer to prayer or a supernatural event, or a revelation by way of the gifts of the Spirit, or an angelic encounter, or some apocalypse, dream or vision, or whatever it is, so that the clouds break, and the sun shines through for a moment, and you can see behind the veil for a moment, and for a moment, thanks to the appearance or the miracle, for a moment you grasp a portion of the knowledge of God and really, really believe not just cognitive assent, not just in your head, not just with religious faith, but with your whole heart and mind. But then the moment passes, and slowly, the passage of time erodes the experience and you begin to doubt yourself. Did I really see that? Did I really experience that? The illusion of concealment settles back like a fog rolling in, and in no time at all, it's as if it never happened. This is what it is like for Pharaoh. He is an exaggerated version of the ordinary human experience with the supernatural, where no miracle is great enough, no sign is clear enough, no revelation is bright enough, to permanently dispel the illusion that there is no God, that we live in a world of pure materialism, that this is all there is. Again and again, Pharaoh comes to the point where he believes. He is ready to acknowledge the Lord. He even consents to let Israel go. And then, with a little passage of time, he changes his mind. It says, he hardens his heart. That is, he changes his mind, strengthens his resolve. So the miracles of the plagues and the signs and the wonders continue, and they become even more undeniable to the point that just to make it fair, just to even the score, so that he has any chance at all of retaining his agnostic worldview, Hashem has to assist him in hardening his heart. You might look at the story and say, that's not fair. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Rashi explains, during the first five plagues, God did not harden Pharaoh's heart. But regarding them, the Torah does not say, 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, but rather, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Rashi on Exodus 7 verse 3. Pharaoh hardened his own heart until halfway through the plagues. After that, the sheer enormity of the plagues decimating Egypt would surely have forced Pharaoh to concede defeat and surrender the Israelites if God had not intervened and hardened Pharaoh's heart. In so doing, God did not make Pharaoh's choice for him. He only reinforced the choice that Pharaoh had already made. Was it unfair that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? On the contrary, it would have been unfair if he had not. Ordinarily, a person does not have ten opportunities to repent, each one punctuated by a prophetic warning and a supernatural display of God's power on an epic scale. Without divine intervention to counterbalance the evidence of God's supernatural hand at work in Egypt, Pharaoh would not have had the same level of freedom of choice that other human beings enjoy. God intervened by hardening Pharaoh's heart. If he had not, the evidence of prophecy and fulfillment would have turned him too easily to God, whereas other human beings do not have that opportunity. Then it would have been unfair. Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart. God knew he would, and in fact had raised him up as Pharaoh because he would. The Lord only reinforced the choices Pharaoh made to counterbalance the epic scale of the miraculous plagues. By the end of the Torah portion, he says to Pharaoh through the voice of Moses, But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Exodus 9:14 and through 16. And there is this principle of culpability in the face of revelation. Yeshua says, To whom much is given, much will be required. And in another place he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen. John 15:24. According to the teaching of the Master, revelation brings responsibility. If a person lives in complete ignorance of Hashem, that's one thing, and he will be judged according to the standard that applies to a person who assumes there is no God. But if a person has received the revelation, has received some knowledge of God, has experienced the supernatural touch, or caught a glimpse behind the veil, then he is responsible and will be judged according to the standard that applies to a person who knows that there is a God, because to this one, much has been entrusted, and much will be required. This is why Pharaoh's sin is so serious, so serious that after committing the sin five times, Hashem hardens his heart for him. By the time we reach the fifth plague, Pharaoh was no longer an honest agnostic. He was deliberately looking away from the appearance of Hashem. Maybe you have known someone a former brother or sister who has left the path of discipleship to Yeshua and chosen the agnostic path. In many cases, the choice seems disingenuous to me. I often sense an ulterior motive. It's not that the brother or sister has struggled with the evidence and the lack of evidence and come to this conclusion. 
In most cases, it's that the allure of sin and secularism, the allure of materialism, or some other desire has made it no longer convenient to walk the path of discipleship, and agnosticism becomes an easy out, an easy way to excuse straying from the path. It's easy to see how this happens, and it happens all the time. The consequences are serious. It would have been better for that brother or sister to have never at all tasted and seen than to have, like Pharaoh, tasted, seen, and turned away. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes a similar statement when he says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. All of that is to say that maybe it's for your own benefit that God doesn't appear to you like he did to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe he knows that if he did, that revelation would make you responsible, like Pharaoh in Egypt, to a standard of judgment you are not prepared to measure up to. I'm fairly confident that's the case with me. What revelations I have received and what miracles I have experienced have not deterred me from hardening my heart many times over and resisting the will of God and straying after my sins. Sufficient for me is the standard of judgment by which I am already measured. But here is the truth of the gospel message about the kingdom. There is a coming day of revelation when the knowledge of God will be universal. And we have access to it now. Not on our own merit, not at all, but by clinging to the one who has seen the Father, who has come from the Father. As the disciple Philip said to Yeshua, Master, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And he replied, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, you don't need to be a spiritual giant like Abraham. Isaac or Jacob, or a prophet like Moses. You only need to attach yourself to Yeshua of Nazareth, the one who knows the Father and makes him known. For no one has ever seen God, but the only Son who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 1.18 In practical terms, this means that our Master's teachings impart a revelation of God. In a mystical sense, it means that as we submit to King Messiah and enter into unity with him, we are drawn into unity with the Father. And through the merit of Yeshua, we vicariously receive a portion of the revelation of God which is his. In this way, we receive a foretaste of the Messianic era. And moreover, we receive the promise of attaining it. Those sins which under ordinary circumstances would condemn us all the more under such a divine impartation of the knowledge of God, those sins are dealt with, nullified, and made to be of no consequence 
for those who repent in his name. This is what we call personal salvation in Yeshua, the way, the truth, and the life. In the Messianic era, God will circumcise our hardened hearts, removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a living heart and a new spirit, that we should not perish like Pharaoh in his pride. In that day, there will be no such thing as agnosticism. Likewise, for those of us in Messiah, if we will have it, Paul says, this circumcision of the hearts has already begun. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of the Messiah, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul. 